Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Folks, I'm just going to pray quickly for us before John comes to, to open that up for us. Father, thank you for this morning. You are a great and almighty and all-powerful God, but we know that you are here with us this morning. We know that you love us and you love the church. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come here this morning after the hustle and the bustle of the week. Father, thank you for the chance just to, to praise your name together, to pray together, Father, and to open your word together. Father, I pray you'll just bless this place this morning. I pray you bless each of the rooms where the kids going on. And Father, I pray you'll just help us in this room now. Just settle us, Father, open our minds and settle our hearts, Father, that we can, we can be open for what John's going to speak to us about this morning, Father. And we pray for him now that you'll give him the words and the wisdom to bring to us this morning. Amen. Thanks, Pete. Uh, morning, everyone. Again, we are beginning a short series. I say short, it'll be dependent on how I'm feeling, really. Uh, we begin a short series on the Beatitudes this morning. Uh, the Beatitudes are maybe a part of Scripture that you've just sort of placed in with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, but, but we're going to focus on these, this particular set of uh, blessings that Jesus pronounces over the, the disciples, the Beatitudes. Now, we need to start at the start. I had an English teacher, uh, Graham Quincy, who always used to say the best place to start was at the start. So, uh, we'll, we'll, we need to start at the start. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? Well, if I had a tagline for this sermon series, it would have been the Beatitudes, hashtag, blessed. Hashtag. See the way I did that? I am so down with the kids, aren't I? Because if I weren't down with the kids, I wouldn't know to do that, but I did it. So, uh, hashtag blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, surely all you need to do is look at social media and you'll find out what it means to be hashtag blessed. You go on there, you'll, you'll see that, that many, many people today feel Blessed. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever other social media platforms you're on, all you need to do is go to the search, type in hashtag blessed, and you will be inundated by people saying that they are hashtag blessed. In our social media-dominated world, saying you're blessed can be the ultimate way of boasting whilst trying to sound humble. Saying you're blessed can be the ultimate way of boasting and trying to sound humble. It is often the best way of executing what I have called before the humble brag. The humble brag. New car, hashtag blessed. Unexpected raise at work. Hashtag blessed. I'm going to have to stop doing that, aren't I? Yeah, all right, sorry. It's annoying. Some people I can see it in their face, like literally see it in their face. What do you do on YouTube? Uh, hashtag blessed. Wonderful family. Hashtag blessed. That's what it means to be blessed, surely. Usually, when someone says, hashtag blessed, or says they're blessed, it comes in the form of, one, material possessions, or two, relational gain. One, material possessions, or relational gain. As Christians, 
We use the term blessed over and over and over again, I think, sometimes, without even considering what it means. I do it. I do it. When I pray, I pray for blessing on such and such. Would you, Lord, bless them? Whilst not really, really digging into what that means. We attribute this blessing but we don't really think about what it means. We talk about our ministries being blessed. We talk about the church being blessed. But what does it mean to be blessed? And in particular, what is Jesus saying here to his disciples about what a blessed life looks like? So what does it mean to be biblically blessed? According to the keyword study Bible, the Greek word that is translated here in this passage is a term, makarai, which means to be fully satisfied. Fully satisfied. And here's the kicker. Here's the important part of the translation of what it means to be blessed. Listen to this. It means receiving God's favor regardless of our circumstance. To be blessed is to receive God's favor regardless of our circumstance. So to be blessed is not to have anything material or relational, but a blessing is to have God Himself in spite of what everything looks like. So when your world is falling apart, would you put, go on the Instagram or Facebook or Twitter and be hashtag blessed. When you get the cancer diagnosis, but you love Jesus and Jesus loves you, would you go on and say hashtag blessed? Because you have Him in spite of what everything else looks like. Scripture shows that blessing is anything that God gives us that makes us fully satisfied in Him. Blessing is anything that God gives us that makes us fully satisfied in Him. Anything that draws us closer to Jesus. Anything that helps us relinquish our temporal desires, our temporal needs here on this earth, and brings us closer to Jesus, that is blessing. Often, most often, I would say, blessing comes in the form of struggle. Blessing comes in the form of trial. Blessing comes in the hard stuff of life. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Not one of us, not one of us in the Christian life grows when things are easy. Not one. We grow and we get closer to Jesus when things are tough. And then we can say, when we have him in that, we can say we are blessed. So what, with that in mind, we move into the Beatitudes. And I'll be honest from the outset, I may take them one at a time. I may clump a couple together. I, we'll, we'll see how we go, all right? But today we are focusing on the first one. Just the first one. Jesus brings his disciples to himself. And he is going to tell them what it means to be blessed. The Beatitudes here come at what's known as the, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. They are eight pronouncements of blessing that Jesus shares with his disciples. Important to understand here. One of the context, one of the context things that's important to understand here. If you read the passage, you will see Jesus seeing the crowds, went up on a mountainside, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So who's with Jesus when he's giving these, these pronouncements? Not the crowds, his disciples. Not the crowds, his disciples. Jesus does not share these pronouncements of blessing with the crowds. He has withdrawn himself, saw the crowds, disappeared up the mountain, and his disciples come to him, and he teaches them. Why is that important? That's important 
Because what Jesus is about to teach his disciples is in a sense Jesus teaching his disciples what the kingdom of God is going to look like. He's sharing with his disciples what the kingdom looks like. And in particular, what citizenship of the kingdom looks like. Jesus has, the way biblical commentators put it, Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom. He has, in the, in the advent, in Jesus coming to earth, he has inaugurated his kingdom. He has drawn disciples to himself. And he is now going to teach these disciples what kingdom living looks like, essentially. What it means to live as kingdom, kingdom citizens. We, very soon again, to our, I would say, absolute delight, I've no doubt, absolute delight, we're going to have elections again soon. I, I would say most of us in this room are buzzing. Just, we're buzzing off the fact that we're going to have elections again, yeah? We're, we're so into that. We love it here and on. We love a good election, right? And we'll find ways to have elections. We'll, we'll collapse stuff and we'll, then we'll have to have elections, just so we can have elections. I'm going to put posters up all over the place and make the place look ridiculous. But... We have elections. And every time there are elections, there are manifestos produced. Every time there are elections, there are manifestos produced. And what those manifestos are, are the politicians telling us what the world is going to look like when they're in charge. Yes? So you get them through the letterbox, and X, Y, and Z from whatever particular party is going to make the world an unbelievable place going to do all these things for you. If they could just lift the bins, that'd be great. Even that's a struggle. But they're going to make the world a better place. And this is how they're going to do it. That's their manifesto. Let me give you a definition of what a manifesto is. A manifesto is a published declaration of the intentions, motives, or views of the issuer. Be it an individual, a group, political party, or government. It is the declaration of the intentions, motives, or views. The Beatitudes are to be read as Jesus' manifesto for what the kingdom and this community is going to look like. They reveal what this new community will be like. This is vital stuff. The Beatitudes address those who experience all kinds of oppression, who will be targeted because of the pursuit of righteousness, and they promise blessing to each of these groups. It's really interesting that the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount itself are completely, let me be clear, completely countercultural to what the world today would tell us where we find blessing. They are completely countercultural. Jesus begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Spurgeon gives us, I read this week Spurgeon's sermon on, on this, and it's just it's fantastic. But I love the analogy Spurgeon gives us on the Beatitudes. He gives us this, this analogy of a ladder. And the first rung of the ladder being this first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is what he says. A ladder, if it is to be of any use, must have its first step near the ground. Or feeble climbers will never be able to mount it. It would have been a grievous discouragement to struggling faith if the first blessing had been given to the pure in heart. To that excellence, the young believer makes no claim. So Spurgeon gives us this visual to understand the Beatitudes as this ladder. And the first rung on the ladder, low to the ground, the first one we climb onto is to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? 
This is what it means. Spiritually empty. Spiritually empty is what it means to be poor in spirit. You see, the problem we have often is we get tripped over the word poor. We associate poor with material lack. That, immediately when you hear poor, that's what you think of. I can guarantee you. You think of material lack. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. What it means is to be spiritually empty. Scripture, including the Old Testament, poor does not necessarily mean material lack or physical lack. It's often a technical term for those who realize at the bottom of it all, when everything else is stripped away, they need God for everything. They need God for everything, both physical and spiritual. This is actually what Isaiah meant when he said this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. What we do with that, wrongly, is think that we need to bring good news to those who don't have stuff. It is a wrong rendering of the text. When Isaiah says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, what he means is that the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to those who realize they are spiritually empty. So to be poor in spirit is to realize that you and I are spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing to offer, nothing to bring to the table. You see, the reality is throughout the Gospels, this is the exact opposite position to who Jesus was dealing with when he was dealing with the Pharisees. This is the exact opposite position to be poor in spirit than he was dealing with the Pharisees. You'll remember this story in Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let me just read to you the Scriptures itself. This is what Luke records. He also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Right? So that's, that's those who are thinking they're, they're, they've got it all. They've, they've, this whole spiritual thing sorted out. Right? He told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said this, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Would you hear these words? God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. There he is, the Pharisee, saying that he is actually spiritually what? Spiritually rich. He's spiritually rich. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And these are the words of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For anyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the Pharisee thought, the Pharisees thought they were rich in spirit. And Jesus points out very clearly, it is those who are poor in spirit, who, those who, who know that they're spiritually bankrupt, who know they have nothing to offer, who know that less, without God they have nothing or are able to do nothing, will go nowhere. It is those who will inherit the kingdom of God. Let me give you some examples from the Old Testament of, of three men 
that particularly were, were, poor, were examples of being poor in spirit. First one is this, Abraham. Abraham, in dealing with God about Sodom and Gomorrah, said this, Behold, I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. I, who am I but dust and ashes? Who am I but dust and ashes? Abraham realizing that he is nothing without God. Jacob, when Jacob returned to the promised land after spending 20 years in exile, he wrestled, we're told he wrestled with God in prayer and said, I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and of the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. For, thy only, for only, with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Listen to those words. I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness which thou hast shown me. Moses, when God come to be with him on the mission to lead his people out of Israel, he said, who am I that I should go and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either, or since thou hast spoken to thy servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. I am nothing without you. I can't do this without you, Moses. Now, one of the critical things about the story of Moses is this. God gets angry with Moses, not because of his humble assessment of his own abilities, but his lack of faith in God. Not because he goes, who am I? I can't go. Not because of that. But because he didn't go, who am I? I can't go, but you can. That's why God gets, Moses, or gets angry with Moses. He says this, who made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go. But there's a, there's a common thread with all of those in the Old Testament, and the reality is this, the three of them came to God and said this, I, in and of myself, am not worthy of anything. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. To realize that you are spiritually bankrupt. To realize that you have nothing to give. Now, let me ask you a question. Where are you? On the scale of Pharisee, think you have it sussed. Think you're spiritually rich. Think you're better than such and such. Think you're actually, you know what? If I was to look at my life, I'm, I'm quite nailing it compared to them. They're, they're, let's picture the Pharisee and the tax collector here again. Lord, thank you that I'm not like them. The danger in the Christian life the danger in the Christian life is this, that somewhere along the line, when we come to Jesus, and let me be clear, there is no other way to come to Jesus, uh, and this may shock some of you, there is no other way to come to Jesus, and you may never have come to Jesus if this is you, there is no other way to come to Jesus and be saved unless you say you are spiritually bankrupt. So if you've, if you've come to Jesus and you have not declared your spiritual bankruptcy, you have not come to Jesus. But somewhere along the line, the danger for us as believers or followers of Jesus is this. Once we get saved, we, 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 we think we clean ourselves up. We think we become better people. And therefore, we look down our noses on others. That's a heinous position to be in. We, if we put ourselves in that position, are no better than the Pharisees. No better. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom.
Sometimes, Daniel, I'm just starting, literally just standing here thinking this now. Sometimes I think we can read the New Testament and just gloss over parts of it. When we read words like that, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they, they will be the ones. No one else. Jesus is quite clear. No one else. They will be the ones that inherit the kingdom of God. So what does it take? How do we get there? How do we be poor in spirit? Well, there's one thing and one thing only that will get us there, and that is humility. Honest, genuine, biblical humility. What produces this kind of poverty of spirit that is blessed and will inherit the kingdom of God is this genuine biblical community. Calvin, at the beginning of the Institute, says there is no greater thing than to have a right view of ourselves and a right view of God. A right view of ourselves and a right view of God. I have used this quote before, and I have no shame in using it again, but Augustine, one of the early church fathers, uh, wrote to a friend, and this is what he said. This is one of the early church fathers who we all look back at and think, legend. Absolute legend. And I, the purpose of, part of the purpose of today is to show you, I've shown you three people from the Old Testament who we would look at and go, flip, they're, they're just nailing it. I've just shown you, every single one of them went, I'm not worthy of anything. It's you. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, who we would look back on and think, but you nailed this. You, brilliant. Planted churches, did the thing, had the theology sorted. Awesome. This is what he says. He's writing to Dicorus, or Dioscorus, or whatever you call him. To my dear Dioscorus, I wish to submit with complete devotion and construct no other way for yourself of grasping and holding the truth than the way constructed by him who as God saw how faltering were our steps. This first way is humility. Second, humility. Third, you probably guessed it, humility. And however often you should ask me, I would say the same, not because there are other precepts to be explained, but if humility does not proceed and accompany and follow every good work we do, and if it is not set before us to look upon, and beside us to lean upon, and behind us to fence us in, pride will wrest it from our hand. And any good deed we do, while we are in the very act of taking pleasure in it, it will be wrestled from us. It is true that there are other defects to be feared in our sins, but pride is to be feared out of every other act. Otherwise, those praiseworthy acts will be lost through the desire of, the pra of praise itself. Humility, humility, humility. Someone said, pride is the mother of all sin. So the obvious antidote is humility. Humility, humility, humility. But what does biblical humility look like? Because I, I just said like at the beginning, we can say we're blessed, and it is the most obvious way of bragging that we've ever seen and trying to be humble with it. But what does biblical humility look like? Well, I want to tell you, uh, I found this article this week that really explains this really well, I think. Uh, what biblical humility is not, first of all. So if we are to be poor in spirit, if we are to have poor in spirit because we want to inherit the kingdom, we need to be poor in spirit. Jesus says those are the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom. What, what, is, what does it not look like to be biblically humble? Biblical humility is not insecurity. Biblical humility is not insecurity. People often mistake personal insecurity for biblical humility. They're clearly not the same thing according to the Bible. 
The Apostle Paul said this, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Paul knew what it was to be humble, but not insecure. Because his security did not come from either himself or from what others thought of him. His security came from what God thought of him. And so, therefore, he was able to be humble and yet secure in who he was. Biblical humility is not insecurity. Paul, at times, needed to assert his authority. Paul had to write to the Corinthian church and say, listen, there's stuff going on there that's not right. Get the person who's doing it out of the church. An insecure person cannot do that. A biblically humble person can do that. Because their, their security is not found in either the opinions of others or indeed even what they think of themselves. Knowing who you are, knowing what you're called to do, being diligent in the discharge of it is not being insecure, but it can be biblical humility. Biblical humility is not insecurity. Biblical humility is not indecisive. Biblical humility is not indecisive. There is no surer way to be labeled a humble person in the evangelical world today than to say, you just don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe that's right. Maybe that's wrong. Not sure. Don't know. Might do that. Might not do that. Not sure. Just not sure. I'm so humble. I'm so humble. I don't know if you saw, you saw a clip that's doing the rounds on the internet this last wee while, but there's this guy, this preacher in America, who came out and he was talking about gender and, and, and so much the, the confusion that is around gender at the moment. And this is what he said. He said, you know what? This is, this is just what God decided. If I had been there, I, I maybe wouldn't have decided it that way. I would have maybe asked God, you know, God, is there not some sort of middle ground that we can go through here? Nonsense. Biblical humility is not indecisiveness. It is being decisive. It is knowing what you believe and standing on what you believe. Jesus preferred men and women of character and conviction. He pointed to John the Baptist and said as a prime example, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No. A man dressed in soft clothing? No. Now, I am dressed in quite soft clothing. I don't know what Jesus would say about me. But he said, no, you didn't go to see that either. Not a reed shaken by the wind. Not a man dressed in soft clothing. No. What did you go out to see? You went out to see a prophet. You went out to see one who would tell you the way of the kingdom. You went out to see one who would ask you to repent and turn to Jesus. That's what you went to see. Not some sort of wishy-washy, I don't know what's going on. Uh, maybe if I was God, I would have done a different type character. No, decisiveness. Indecisiveness is nothing more than a failure to take God at His word. It's not humility, though it is often mistaken as such. Thirdly, biblical hu humility is not inactivity. It is not inactivity. It is not insecurity. It is not indecisiveness. It is not inactivity. It's not hedging your bets, playing it safe, hiding your talent. Again, the Apostle Paul lived his life and executed his ministry almost like a man possessed. He said, pointing back to the first scripture that I, that I quoted, I worked harder than any of them. The Apostle Paul, 
in the Bible. Now, if I was to get up here in front of you today, right, and be like, listen, folks, I am working harder than any of you for the kingdom. What would you think? Well, you'd think, one, he's lying. Two, uh, you would think, up by there, full of pride. Would you not? Would you not? You would. The Apostle Paul, in the Scriptures, declared to the churches that he was working harder than anyone. And no one, no one could accuse the Apostle Paul of being prideful. No one. He said this, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. We as evangelicals often look at someone who's working hard and think to ourselves, oh, they must be trying to prove something. They must be trying to find some sort of like justification for themselves in their works. And so a lot of the evangelical world will just be like, oh, well, sure, we're just not bothered. We don't need to, we, we don't need to work hard because grace covers all. Yeah? No. Work hard. Laziness and the kingdom of God do not coexist. Laziness, Jesus does not respect. He says this, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and I gather where I, where I had no seed. Then you ought to have invested the money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what, I was, what, what was on my own with interest. So take the talent from him. Just going off on a wee rant here, sorry. Just, just when I see that, just, just that. I have never been in a church where there is more talent in people than this church. Never. Never witnessed the like of it. That's just not, and I'm excluding myself, never witnessed the like of it with a group of people who are more talented than this group of people. But can I ask you this? Do you think, this is, I'm, I'm not, I'm asking you to ask yourself, as I will ask myself, do you think you are executing your gift to the utmost of your ability? Because hiding it or not using it is not humble. It is wicked and it is slothful and it is lazy. Just ask yourself. Just ask yourself. Biblical humility is not inactivity. It is rebellion. So biblical humility is not insecurity, it is not indecisiveness, and it is not inactivity. So what is it? Biblical humility is this. It is utter dependency on God's mercy. Biblical humility is utter dependency on God's mercy. Luke said at the beginning of that text that I quoted a while ago, those who were trusting in their own righteousness. He told the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector to those who were trusting in their own righteousness. That's what he did. And he said, he gave that example of those two, two different people, the Pharisee and the tax collector, going to, the, going to the synagogue and saying, the Pharisee saying, I do not want to be like that. Thank you, God, that I am not like that. And in this parable, to be humble is to be aware of your own sin, your own unworthiness, and to cast yourself on the mercy of God. Folks, when we realize 
And I genuinely think we can only realize through the power and person of the Holy Spirit when we realize how sinful we are. We have no room or should in no way look at anyone else and think, what the flip are they doing? We're better than them. We're not. We're not. Biblical humility is those who know their own sin and cast themselves on the mercy of God. Biblical, biblical humility is unconcerned for power, prestige, or position. Biblical humility is unconcerned for power, prestige, and position. According to Jesus, humble people are not scrambling for power. They're not looking positions. They take the lowest seat. You know, the only time that we quote the first shall be last is when there's a, when there's a queue for food. And actually, Jesus said it. In the kingdom of God, there is no power grabs. There are, there are no, there's nobody looking for a position. There's nobody looking to be whatever they, whatever they think they need to be. It doesn't exist in the kingdom of God. That's what the Pharisees did. Jesus often contra contrasted his own expectation for the disciples with the proud Pharisees. He says this, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven, neither to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The great among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You get the picture? Biblically humble people don't look for positions or power. They look for where they can serve. They look for where they can serve. Thirdly, biblical humility is dependence on God's mercy. It is unconcerned for power or position. Thirdly and finally, it is unquestioning acceptance of God's Word. Jesus is the ultimate example, I'm sure you would agree, of biblical humility, who, though He was in the form of God, did not account equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus in the garden, Lord, is there any other way? No, right, let's do it. Biblical humility is acceptance of God's Word. Whether we like it or not. Whether we understand it or not. God speaks, we accept, and we do. That's biblical humility. So biblical humility is not insecurity. It's not indecisiveness. It's not inactivity. It is utter dependence on God's mercy. It is unconcern for power, prestige, and position. It is unquestioning acceptance of God's Word. I want to give you a real, another, as we finish today, I want to give you a real life example, again, of someone who we would look at and think to ourselves, flip, if I could only accomplish the half of that for the kingdom, I would do well. And then I want to tell you what they said about themselves. William Carey. William Carey was the founder of what we would call the modern missionary movement. William Carey translated the Bible, I think, completely into five different languages and 
possibly parts of the Bible into 29 other languages. I don't know if there's anybody in the room can compete with that. No? If we were looking at the kingdom, like if we were thinking of the kingdom Olympics, William Carey, gold medal winner, without doubt, went and served in countries that we would never even think about going. Took the gospel to many nations, sent many people into these nations, just a beast of the faith like. William Carey did not have high self-esteem. John Piper writes this, he castigated himself again and again for his own sin. When the fire of 1812 destroyed dozens of his precious manuscripts, like, think, Bonnie or Fergie, we've yet to pin it down, right? But one of them, one of them chowed our rug this week. Chowed our rug, chewed, chowed. I'm going chowed. We're fine. Right? Chowed our rug, racked it, right? Raging. Absolutely raging. Nothing to do with me. I was out in the bike. Julius was home. Right? But chowed the rug. Raging. Couldn't get raging. Had to sort of thing out, right? Dogs, discipline, stuff like that. Right? I felt really bad about that. This is a man who is translating the Bible into different languages. And the house goes on fire. And he loses all his manuscripts. Right? Just put yourself in that position. Not a child rug. Manuscripts, biblical texts, burned. That you've spent hours and hours and hours and hours pouring yourself into. This is what he said. First of all, he didn't blame the devil. Really important to note. That's where we usually first go, right? The devil did it. Nope. He didn't blame the devil. He said this. How unsearchable are the ways of God. And then he accused himself of too much self-congratulation in his labors. He said this. The Lord has smitten us, and he had right to do so. And he had right to do so. And we deserve his corrections. It's a bit of a different attitude, isn't it? When he had outlived four of his missionary comrades, he wrote back to one of them, a friend called Andrew Fuller, and said this, I know not why so fruitless a tree is preserved, but the Lord is too wise to err. William Carey, let me just remind you, a man who translated the Bible completely, I think, in five different languages, 29 other parts of the Bible, or 29 different sections of the Bible into other languages so that people could understand it in the mother tongue, said this, I know not why so fruitless a tree is preserved, but God is too wise to err. And then, when he died in 1834, in Serampore, a simple tablet was put on top of his grave, grave with the words that he requested. And when you hear these words, I want you to ask yourself a question. What was William Carey's secret? Just ask yourself that question, right? This is a man, as I told you, he's done all these things. He served the Lord. He's built a kingdom. These are the words on his gravestone, this wee small tablet that he put on top of his gravestone. These are the words that he wanted to wrote on them. Now, what's his secret? William Carey, born August 17th, 1761, died June 9th, 1834, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. What's the secret? The secret for William Carey was not self-esteem, as the world would tell us. The secret is that he was poor in spirit to the very, very end of his life. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm, he calls himself. Knowing his sin, knowing his failures. And a secret comes in the last line of that, on thy kind arms I fall. 
on his kind arms I fall. Folks, if we cannot declare today that we are, as William Carey declared, wretched, poor, helpless, worms, but, but on thy kind arms we fall, I fear we don't know Jesus. We can't look at ourselves honestly in the mirror and say that we are wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, naked, and just completely bankrupt. But, but at the same time say, on thy kind arms I fall. That's, that's, that's where it's at. That's where it's at, folks. That's, that's a spiritual life summed up in, in one sentence. So let me ask you a question as we close. Are you a Pharisee or a tax collector? Are you a Pharisee or a tax collector? Do you think, do you know, I'm not that bad. Maybe used to be bad, but I'm not like one of those sinners now. Are you the tax collector? Because the reality is Jesus said only one went away justified. And it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee. Folks, the worst thing that could ever be said about you or I or Cornerstone Church is that those people think they're better than everybody else. That's the worst thing that could ever be said. We are nothing but for the grace of God. But for the grace of God. Jesus said, blessed. You want to be blessed today? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For they, they're the ones that will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray for us. Father, We thank you for your word. Father, sometimes sometimes your word just cuts us like a knife. But Father, I pray today that through the power and person of the Holy Spirit that we would know that that knife is in the hands of the ultimate physician. That that scalpel that he wields is doing us good. Father, cut us, we pray, in the right ways. Help us to see that it is for our good. Help us to see that it is for us to throw ourselves on your mercy more and more and more and more. We need you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.